Well, good evening. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. You know, I think Revelation, chapter 13, is probably the best-known chapter in the book. For no other reason, it uh, contains the infamous Mark of the Beast, 666. Uh, even unbelievers who don't know anything about the Bible know 666. So I would have to say then that this chapter is the probably the best known of all the Bible, among unbelievers especially. But um, we'll get to that. Uh, but first, let's kind of back up just a little bit for any new folks here tonight or those who are joining us online for our live stream service. Um, in this chapter, we are introduced to two coming world leaders, one political and the other religious. In verses 1 to 10, we are introduced to the first of these two leaders, a political leader likened to a beast that comes out of the sea. Verse 1, we know him as the Antichrist. We've covered this already. I'm just kind of uh, bringing some up to speed here. And then in verses 11 through 18, we are introduced to a second beast, a religious leader who rises up out of the earth and will unite the world in a global religion. This second beast is called the false prophet. So, verse 1, John said, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who was like the beast, who was able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now let me stop there, because this last verse, verse 8, uh, hits on a, uh, a debate that's been going on for a long time. And uh, the de debate is as to whether a true child of God can lose their salvation. And many... Uh, in, say yes based in part on what Jesus said in Revelation th uh, 3, verse 5. So I'll read that to you, Revelation 3, verse 5. Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so because of this verse and others, but you know, because of this verse, one of the main verses they they will look at, uh, many Christians believe that a true uh, believer in Jesus Christ can lose their salvation. Why? Well, if your name is written in the book of life, you're saved. And if it can be blotted out, well, then you could lose your salvation. Now, the question is, there are, there are things in Scripture that look like a slam dunk. 
and a lot of people don't dig any deeper than what is on the surface, and they run with it, all right? Um, is that what is really being taught here? Can a true Christian lose their salvation and wind up going to hell? I don't believe a true Christian can lose their salvation. And we don't have time to get into all the reasons why. But the question then is, well, then how do I explain what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 5? Well, it could be that there are two books. One called the Book of Life and the other called the Lamb's Book of Life. Or that they are actually one in the same book. What do I mean? All right. Let me um, quote an author. Uh, who I thought summed this up about as best as anybody I've ever read, okay? He said, and I quote, Is there a warning here that a true believer might lose his salvation? I don't think so. It would appear that God's book of life contains, contains the names of all the living, the wicked as well as the righteous. And then he makes a reference for Psalm 69, verse 28, which you can look up at your leisure. He said, Revelation 13, verse 8 and 17, verse 8, suggests that the names of the saved are written in the book from the foundation of the world. That is, before they had done anything good or bad. By God's grace, they have been chosen in Christ before the beginning of time. Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. He said that in Luke 10, verse 20. The Greek verb is in the present tense which means it can be translated as Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest does translate it in his expanded translation of the New Testament. Here's what Wiest says, Your names have been written in heaven and are on permanent record up there. The author says it's not likely that Jesus would contradict himself in this important matter. Now, hold that thought. I want to jump over to something Warren Worsby said, and we'll come back to that first author. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, If the names of believers, the elect, are written from the foundation of the world and if God knows all things, why would he enter the name of somebody who would one day fall and have to be removed from the book? We are enrolled in heaven because we have been born again, Hebrews 12, 23 tells us. And no matter how disobedient a child may be, he or she, listen, cannot be unborn, end quote. Getting back to that first author who says he believes that the book of life contains the names of all the living, those who would ever live on planet earth, the wicked and the just, he said as unbelievers die, their names are removed from the book. Thus, at the final judgment, the book contains only the names of believers, those that were chosen from the foundation of the world. It then becomes the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13.8. And chapter 21, verse 27. Because only those saved by the Lord Jesus have their names now written in it. Everybody else has been blotted out. Okay? And um, all the others have been blotted out. Something God would never do for any true child of God. Because this is the book of life, whereas lost sinners are dead and trespasses and sins. All right. I'll leave that with you. Okay? But... In the light of everything that chapter 13 so far has presented, and I think even as much as uh, everything we have read in Revelation, starting with probably chapter 6 up until this point, we read uh, a very important exhortation, one that Jesus himself repeated seven times 
when he gave the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. After every, you know, exhortation, admonition, correction, condemnation, he said, anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, if you have any spiritual hearing at all, you're interested in spiritual things at all, listen to what I'm saying. Of course, there are some who are so far removed from spiritual, they're so locked into the earth uh, in the material world that, you know, when you start talking about spiritual things, their eyes go crossways, uh, they think you're speaking a different language, and it, there's, there's no connection at all. I've met people like that. Maybe you have too. Frightening. Frightening. They're so dead in trespasses and sins, okay? But um, at this point in verse 9, we read, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Guys, Revelation 13, verse 9, applies this truth to any man or woman. I don't care when you're living, right now or in the tribulation period. This is, this is a word from the Lord. And Jesus, again, repeated this seven times in chapters 2 and 3, which were devoted to the church age, the age in which we are living. So this is not for some future tribulation generation. Every time God has something very important he wants to say, and this statement seems to be connected to eternal truths all the time. Yet, you have an ear. Please listen to what I'm saying, the Lord Jesus. Look, we know that there are many horrific things coming upon this world in the way of deception and judgment. We are studying them right now. We are studying them right now. But the Bible is clear. Today is the day of salvation. Whether you're living right now or, to, or, or in the tribulation generation, whatever day you find yourself alive, if you're not saved, today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. You may not get a, a, another chance. Um, it's time to make a decision to follow the true and living God by receiving his son Jesus Christ into your heart. We talked a lot about that Sunday. If you weren't here, you can go online and listen to the message. Before it's too late, if you have an ear to hear, hear, listen, okay? Now, verse 10, which is a kind of an interesting verse, all right? I studied this verse in most of my commentaries, and the, the consensus was pretty much unanimous. Nobody really knows. No. Uh, no, no, I mean, it's not that hard. But there are some different uh, ideas, okay? I'll, I'll just give you mine, okay? Uh, but verse 10, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This proverb or maxim contains an important practical truth for those believers who will be alive at the time of the Antichrist persecution. They are to depend on God's providence and not take matters into their own hands. In other words, they must not retaliate against their persecutors. They must submit to the persecution that is coming under the Antichrist and his followers, much like those first century Christians didn't take up arms against the Roman government but submitted to martyrdom and 
were used by God to bring thousands and thousands of people to Jesus Christ by the way they died. They didn't fight. They weren't cursing their captors, persecutors. They were singing songs to God as they were dying. They were praying for forgiveness for the people that were killing them. And as we have said before, that made quite an impact on that Greco-Roman world of the first century who were indulging their flesh with everything imaginable but were unhappy, unfulfilled, empty. They had nothing really to live for even though they were gorging their flesh every day. And here people had not only had something to live for, they had something to die for. And wow, did it really bring many, many, many people to Christ, not just in the first century but in the, in the second and third as well, and up to this present day, of course. But this is what God, what he's doing. He is telling this future generation of tribulation saints not to fight against their persecutors, but to submit to what's going on and accept martyrdom with the right spirit. Don't fight back. Guys, listen. There is no place now, uh, and there will be no place then, for militant, aggressive, violent believers who take up arms against their persecutors, even as Jesus said when he was facing his persecutors, I'm thinking of Pontius Pilate. Remember what Pilate said? Are you a king? That was the charge. Well, kings have armies. And that's all Rome really cared about. They didn't care what god you worshipped. But they really um, were big on peace, the Pax Romana, and insurrection was a real no-no. So when Pilate asked Jesus, well, are you a king then? Jesus knew what he was thinking. And if he said yes, well, then you must have an army. Jesus says, yeah, I, I'm a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, listen, would fight. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Don't ever forget that. This is not our kingdom. We love our country. I happen to be very patriotic. I love my country. I am very thankful to God for giving me such a country growing up with freedom and prosperity and so on. I don't, I don't take that for granted. But this is not my kingdom. The kingdom that I belong to is the kingdom of God. Now, there's a couplet in verse 10. The first part reads, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. In other words, any believer in those days that takes captive and imprisons any of their oppressors will themselves lose their freedom and be taken captive. They will lose their freedom as an act of God's sovereign chastening because they will be fighting against God's purposes in wanting to use these tribulation saints and by, by them dying with such dignity, grace, um, love towards those who were uh, killing them, God was want, is wanting to use that to touch whatever whoever has a heart left that can be touched to come to Christ. God is allowing this 
It's, it's according to his sovereign purposes and his will. And to fight against those that are working for the Antichrist, to round up and to kill Christians during this period of time is to really fight against God's purposes. And God said, if you, if you take captive prisoners, you yourself will be imprisoned. Okay? Um, God is wanting to use these tribulation saints by their submissive attitude and gentle spirit to bring people to Jesus. And the same thing applies to the second part of the couplet. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Any Christian at that time, again, that takes up arms against their oppressors and kills one of them, will, be, will by divine retribution, be killed themselves. They will, be, they will forfeit their own life. Because, again, they will be fighting against God. God has got a plan here. God is saying it right here. And don't think this book is not going to be the most read, the most studied book by, by tribulation Christians. I mean, I would imagine this thing is going to be talked about nonstop in Christian circles, okay? They're going to know verse 10 of chapter 13. And what was being said here that, look, if you, uh, if, if you um, go against these persecutors of yours, and try to capture them, you're going to be captured. and Or maybe even kill one of them, God says, you forfeit your life, because you're fighting against my purposes. This is of me. Don't fight against it. Submit to it. All right? And then the Lord ends verse 10 with the words, here is the patience. The Greek word means perseverance and faith of the saints. May I paraphrase? All right? Here is how true Christians are going to show they are filled with the Holy Spirit, by the way, they persevere. Uh, they're going to show how they have genuine faith. It's all going to be on display. In other words, those who obey God in this matter will prove, listen, will prove the, the genuineness of their faith that they are truly God's people, God's saints. Now, there are some who would read this, some Christians today, who would say, well, if I was ever in that situation, I'm not going to submit. I'm getting out my AK-47 or my AR-15. I'm going to war. Can I just say this to you? If that would ever happen, it would prove you don't have saving faith. Because God is saying, I'm going to paraphrase again, the ones that submit, love their enemies, pray for them, and go to their deaths without fighting, are the ones that I am putting on display that have true faith. Those that say, uh-uh, not me, I'm going to war. I, I got my little, you know, my little arsenal and I'm all ready to fight. Um, well, I, I'm just going to tell you that that is a sign of unbelief, even though you call yourself a Christian. One author put it well. He said, and I quote, If the Christian takes the sword, he will not establish the faith. For the truth of Christ cannot be defended by violence. He will simply perish by the sword. But the persecuted can know that the last word is not with the persecutors. This is not fatalism, but the conviction that God is sovereign and works, and works out his good and perfect will. And I'll add, sometimes through our suffering, sometimes through ways that we don't understand. Why can't we fight, Lord? You're the king, right? Didn't Peter want to fight for his king? What did Jesus say? Put your sword away. 
If I wanted to, I could call on my father, and he would send 72,000 angels to come to my rescue. That's a lot of angels. One angel wiped out 185,000 Assyrians at the dinner one night in the Old Testament. I think 72,000 could do quite a bit of damage. The point is, God doesn't need us to protect him. We don't have to fight, you know, unless you belong to the kingdom now mentality where we have to do everything to bring get Jesus to come back. We got to do it all. Got to fight, got to clean up society. No, no. It's all him, okay? What we need to do is obey. Just obey what he has told us to do, right? You know, we talked a few Sundays ago about the five missionaries that went to Ecuador in 1956 to try and reach the Aka Indians for Christ. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Darian. Uh, they, they were martyred, of course. They made a movie about th th these men. I think it was called Point of the Spear. I think it was, we showed it in church a few years ago. And um, in that movie, one of their very close friends, now, the movie was made 50 years after the fact. And this gentleman that was recounting this was weeping. He couldn't hold back his emotion. It's like it happened yesterday. But he says something I never forgot. He said, those men were armed. Each of them carried a pistol. But they said, we will never use our, our weapons against the AUKUS. Why? We're ready to die. They are not. They could have killed these Aka Indians and saved their own lives. Instead, they submitted to everything, submitted to the process, were killed. And, of course, that allowed um, uh, uh, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, I'm sorry, my mind went blank, to go back and start working with the Aka Indians. And uh, she wound up, I think the whole tribe got saved. The whole village. They would have been dead if these men had protected themselves. Th that's the mentality. That's the basic mentality we're talking about here. During the, the tribulation period, true believers are not to retaliate, and they won't. They're not to fight against their, their oppressors. They are to submit to them, allow themselves to be martyred for Jesus. Uh, Peter has a lot to say on this subject. He said, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Turn to Luke 9. Now, not every Christian who wants to fight um, literally for Jesus with weapons, uh, not everybody who has that heart is not necessarily a Christian. They can be just very young Christians. Uh, you know, it's a lot of young Christians who still think and, and act out of emotion. Um, there are carnal Christians that do the same thing. We see how Jesus' men uh, were very young in their faith and wanted to do something uh, contrary to what Jesus um, wanted them to do. In Luke 9, verse 52, And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans, Samaritans to prepare for him, for Jesus. But they did not receive him because... 
his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So they, they didn't want Jesus and his guys to come into their village, okay? Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, okay, uh, the hotheads of the group, uh, when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Jesus said, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Okay. Do I want fire to come down and wipe these? No, let's just go to a different town. But guys, instead of reacting violently, believers must exemplify what is said here. The perseverance and faith of the saints. Um, we just have to understand that. That's, that's honoring Jesus, right? And again, Peter had a lot to say about this subject. Um, he said, you know, when you're reviled for Christ, remember, don't revile in return. While suffering, think of Jesus. He didn't revile in return. Uh, he uttered no threats but kept uh, entrusting himself to the Father who judges righteously, right? When believers follow Jesus' example, Peter noted uh, in 1 Peter 3.16, those who revile their good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The idea is, you know, uh, unbelievers are going to say all kinds of things against us. But just keep living for Jesus. And if they say anything that, you know, against you and to put you down, just make sure it's false. That, you know, there's nothing they really have. Just they, they're making stuff up, okay? Um, and Peter said uh, also that those who are reviled for the name of Christ are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on them. One pastor said, and I quote, The message of this passage is clear. Let the monstrous beast from the abyss do his worst. Let Satan and his demon hosts have their hour. God controls the future and believers belong to him. In all these things, we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And we will trample on that glorious, excuse me, we will triumph on that glorious day when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and we will reign forever and ever with him. So verse 11, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Now, in contrast to the first beast that came up out of the sea, it was terrifying to behold, verses 1 and 2. This second beast that comes up out of the earth is less terrifying. In fact, some would even say that he's kind of docile or even, I don't know, teddy bear-like. By contrast, that's probably overstating it, okay? Uh, but don't fool yourself. He may look sweet and charming, but he speaks like a dragon. Hold on to that thought, Okay. Now, guys, commentators are not in agreement with regard to the identity of this second beast, all right? Uh, and I'm just throwing this out to you because, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear, and I've told you who I think it is, right? But there are a lot of good commentators that are not in agreement. I just thought I'd throw it out so you have a working knowledge of this. Some view this second beast as an institution of some kind, or a form of government, or the apostate church, or even something like an ideology, 
But the Apostle John helps us to identify this beast when he said, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The Greek word he uses for another is alas. And we have talked about that. We just talked about it Sunday. There are two words in Greek for another. There is heteros. We get the word heterosexual from this word. It's a word that means another of a different kind. Men and women are people, but we're different, obviously. Heterosexual. Uh, but heteros, another of a different kind. And then there's alas, another of exactly the same kind. Ice is exactly the same as water. It's just in a different form. And that's the idea. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used the night before his crucifixion when he promised his disciples, I'm, not gonna, I'm going away, you can't go with me, but I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper. Use the word alas, okay? Another helper, all right? Um, not a different God, but the same God in a different form is the idea, right? The Holy Spirit is God. He's not a different God. Uh, he is God, the third person of the Trinity. And so when John says, said, then I saw another, Allah's beast, coming up out of the earth, he means another of the same kind. Uh, by using the word Allah's, guys, with regard to the second beast in relation to the first beast. The first beast was Antichrist, but it was a person. Now there is another beast that John sees uh, of the same kind. Well, what does that mean? That just, be, just as the Antichrist is going to be a real person, not an institution or ideology, so too will the second beast be a person, okay? And, and that we, we appreciate John, uh, you know, choosing his words. Of course, the Holy Spirit was inspiring him. But um, just as the Antichrist was, made his appearance on the world scene, right, earlier, uh, verses 1 to 10, now another beast rises, this time out of the earth. And as the Antichrist is going to be a person, so the second beast will be a person as well. Uh, we read uh, about these two guys a little more in Revelation 19, verse 20. This is when Jesus comes back at his second coming. And uh, after he annihilates the armies of the Antichrist, uh, it says in verse 20, Revelation 19, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So we have two people going into hell, all right? Not one guy in an ideology, but two people, all right? I think we all agree to understand that. Now, with the coming of the false prophet, guys, this completes what some commentators call the satanic trinity. Remember, Satan is always trying to imitate. He is a counterfeiter of everything God is and does. He wants to counterfeit it, right? Um, and many see with the coming of the false prophet, now the satanic trinity is complete. Uh, Satan the dragon sets himself up as the anti-God the father. He also sets up the first beast as the Antichrist. Jesus is the true Christ, the Son of God. Well, this guy is called the Son of Perdition. And then the second beast is set up as the Anti-Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, guys, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus, the true Christ, obviously, and to lead people to trust and worship Him. We're going to be studying this 
this Sunday, uh, John chapter 16, verses 7 to 15, uh, talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, okay? And one of his uh, main ministries, probably the main, if not the only ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to glorify Jesus, the true Christ. The false prophet will point to Antichrist and his image and compel people to worship the Antichrist, right? This uh, fake Christ, you know, we worship the true Christ, uh, but the, 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 the false prophet is going to get people to worship this false Christ, but ultimately through the false Christ of worshiping him, worshiping Satan, which is what Satan has always wanted, to be worshiped as God. And so, um, but this is all going to be going on on the earth uh, with uh, the coming of, the, uh, of now the, the false prophet and, um, and ultimately he's going to lead the world into worship of the devil, the dragon, and the antichrist. Verse 11, again we read, And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Uh, in contrast to the first beast, who will come up out of the sea, verse 1 tells us, the second beast is going to come up out of the earth. Now, I don't believe this is literal. I don't believe he's going to start tunneling his way uh, up to the surface of the earth and actually come out of the earth. No, I, I, I don't believe it's literal, uh, as the sea is symbolic of the first beast uh, and how he comes out of the sea, quote-unquote. We looked at this. could be a reference, a symbolic reference to uh, the, the nations, the Gentile nations. Uh, often in the Scripture, the seas, uh, the Gentile nations are likened to the seas. And we've talked about that, and it could be that the Antichrist is a Gentile. And so as the sea is symbolic that the first beast comes out of, I believe the earth is also symbolic that the second beast comes out of. One author said, and I quote, In the ancient world, the, the earth was less mysterious and foreboding than the sea. That the false prophet arises from the earth suggests that he will be subtler, gentler, less overpowering, and less terrifying than the Antichrist, end quote. Now this interpretation would be consistent with the rest of verse 1. Then I saw another, excuse me, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Guys, the horns in the scripture represent authority uh, and power. Uh, the two horns indicate that the second beast has authority, but notice the first beast had what? Had um, ten horns, okay? Uh, a lot of power, okay? A lot of power, but what was on those ten horns? Ten what? Crowns. Uh, the crowns of a king, the crowns of a ruler, okay? Uh, indicating that this first beast was going to be a ruler. In fact, he'd be over ten rulers that would oversee uh, the one world government, okay? Um, notice that this man, this false prophet, uh, comes out of the earth and he has two horns but no crowns on those horns, indicating that he's going to be a leader but not a political leader, not a political leader. Now, Jesus warned that there would be false prophets on the earth at this time. And we've looked at Matthew 24. You can look at it again, verses 11, 11 and 24. Jesus talked about how there'd be false Christ and false prophets proliferating throughout the earth during this period of time, right? Um, but this guy, guys, this guy, out of all the false prophets alive at this time um, during the tribulation period, is going to be the greatest of them all. 
greatest false prophet of them all. He will have the character of a lamb. In other words, he'll give the appearance of gentleness, meekness, and harmlessness. But he's going to talk like the dragon. Who's the dragon? Satan. And what did Jesus say in John 8, 44 about Satan? He is the father of lies. You know, you could have a very sweet person lie through their teeth, you know? And um, interesting, right? Uh, This guy, you know, he's going to be Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. Soft-spoken, uh, no doubt coming with a message of love and unity. But that doesn't mean he's going to be harmless. Listen, people like their political leaders to be tough. They like their spiritual leaders to be tender. The devil's no fool. He's been studying us for a long time. He knows what buttons to push and what leaders to give this world that people will readily follow these two guys, right? Tough political leader, very tender, sweet soft-spoken spiritual leader but don't fool yourself the bible is telling us this guy's going to be a dragon just like the antichrist okay um of course he's no doubt going to come with a message of love what false prophet doesn't right um and 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 this message of love is going to be directed pretty much at all those who agree with him and follow the antichrist for those who don't agree with him not much love for them as the Antichrist is going to be butchering them, true believers, by the thousands and listened by the hundreds of thousands during this period of time. But for the most part, the world's, in the world's way of thinking, this guy's going to, going to have a very positive message of love and unity, of tolerance and inclusiveness, of you know coming together as one global family. Very positive message. You know, I just kind of envision this guy to just be a just a, a kind of a real nice guy, kind of a teddy bear hug kind of message. Who wouldn't like this guy? You'd be evil if you would, don't like this guy, you know? Uh, Fauci, I mean the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the false prophet. Sorry, I got, got my leaders mixed up. But, but okay. Um, you know, one global family is trying to unite us. You have to be evil not to follow this guy and, and, and our Messiah, who we know is the Antichrist. Um, again, he's going to look like, or in other words, give the appearance of a lamb. You know, sweet and gentle in character, but he's going to speak like a dragon, false doctrine. Look, there is physical death and there is eternal death. Physical death is obvious. Eternal death, what the Bible calls the second death, is spending eternity in hell. And there's been a lot of people over the years, false teachers, who have presented themselves as such loving individuals. And people get sucked into the, to the love, you know? And um, could such a loving person be bad? Well, yeah, the devil's pretty clever. And his people can really masquerade as ministers of righteousness, his angels, as angels of light. But it's the devil is very good at what he does. And what he does is deceive to destroy. That's why we need to be in God's word. Because it's not what a person looks like and how gentle they seem and how loving. It's what comes out of their mouth. That is the real Okay, 
Uh, I've, I've told over the years, people will have asked me, um, "Am I against rock and roll music?" Some churches are against the music, and I said, "Look, I, I don't have a problem with the with the music, uh, but it's the words attached to the music." You know, some of our early hymns were actually bar uh, tunes that were lifted from taverns back in those days. And the Christians put Christian lyrics to them. And when they did that, in my mind, they sanctified the song. It's not the music. Uh, drums are evil. You know, any church, there are churches that will not have drums at all because they're evil. Uh, drums are drums. Uh, notes on a page, guitar, they're, they're just music. It's the words, right? Look past the, I, I, you know, I, the, the, these guys on TV, I, I think most of them are wolves, these uh, televangelists, right? And, uh, but they all look so nice, don't they? Good-looking guys. They're walking up down stage with, what, $2,000 or more. I don't know what is a really expensive suit go for nowadays, $2,500, $3,000. I don't know. You know, $1,000 pair of shoes, okay? I, I shop at Walmart. I have no idea what all, all that stuff costs. Uh, it, it, it looks like it. Wait, but, but here, uh, okay? Um, but it's all part of the persona to get you disarmed, to let your guard down. And they all have this beautiful dental work. Their teeth, it's like, wow, it, their teeth are so white, you know, and how could they be a false prophet? You try to tell people, well, how could they be a false prophet? You know, they look so nice. They have such nice teeth. All the better to eat you with, my dear, right? <laughs> They're a wolf. That's what they are, okay? Um, but he's going to look like a lamb. Sweet, gentle, but he will speak like the dragon. False doctrine will come out of his mouth. He will do a lot of talking, no doubt, about loving everyone, but underneath he is a dangerous beast, just like the first beast. Both of them will be of the devil. Both of them will deceive the world, and uh, many, like spiritual Pied Pipers, they're going to be playing their tune, and many are going to be following them down the road to destruction. Sad. It kind of reminds me of the Dalai Lama. You guys all know who the Dalai Lama is, right? Um, last time he came out to Chicago was in 07. And I don't know if you remember, he was at either Millennial Park or um, what's the other one? Um, where is it? Grand Park. Grand Park. Yeah, I think it was Millennial Park. And, uh, of course, the news media was fawning all over this guy, Okay. Just fawning all over him. Billy Graham comes to town; they could, they could barely give him a, a you know, a, a line in the paper. Okay, but they were fawning all over this guy, and uh, and so they were interviewing him nonstop. Now, as I was watching the interviews, I thought to myself, you know, this guy looks like just a real nice guy. He was disarming. He was humble. He looked down a lot like he was shy, uh, just to see, come across a real sweet, gentle guy. You know, in a, under a different circumstance, you might want to take in a ball game with the guy, right? He just had this persona that he was just kind of a sweet guy, right? 
But when he got to talking and teaching, and of course the news media was just riveted, uh, it was, you know, Buddhism, um, you know, Hinduism, um, man is God. We have all that we need within ourselves. We don't look, need to look, anybody, to look to anybody else. He gave a message that is right out of the pit of hell. Now, let me tell you about this nice guy for a second, and we'll move on. One of the pastors that I uh, know very well, he's, he's, in fact, he's come out to our men's retreat and taught, has been to India many times, many times. And he told his pastors at one pastor's conference, he said, here's something you never hear about the Dalai Lama when you turn on the news and he's being interviewed. He, he will periodically go into this big, in India, it's big stadium, holds a lot of people, uh, Indians, are, are the, the main audience, okay? They all pile in, and then he, the doors are locked into this stadium. Nobody can get in, and nobody can see what's going on in there. But he said, I've got a few guys that were, uh, were uh, uh, Hindus and others that got saved, and, and now they, you know, they can get into places because people don't know they're saved. And he said, and what they told me is, after the doors are locked, and only the believers... Dalai Lama's followers are there. Uh, he will walk up onto the stage, and I'm sorry to tell you this. He will defecate on the stage, and his followers run up to ingest his waste. Because no. he's a god. He's looked on as a god. And you want to partake of your god. Okay? Um, you know, be careful. Again, it's not how people come across sweet, kind, gentle. What comes out of their mouth? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Back to Revelation 13, verse 12. And he, the false prophet, exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Um, many scholars believe that during the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, the second beast, the false prophet, will be the leader of the apostate or uh, what some call the world church made up of it's going to be made up of religions from all over the world all coming together a world church okay and the false prophet is going to be the leader in the first half of this seven-year period we call the tribulation period uh, technically it's called the 70th week of daniel uh, but we understand what it's all about right um, many believe that this false prophet could very well be the Roman Catholic Pope. And we will study why many believe that uh, we get to chapter 17. Uh, but with the rise of the first beast, um, uh, with the rise of the first beast to a place of worldwide dominion. When does that happen? Worldwide dominion. Uh, when he shows up at the beginning of the seven-year period, he's thrust into power. The world wants him to be the leader. He seems to have the answers, right? And he's got supernatural charisma, intelligence, and even supernatural power. So he's kind of thrust into the role, and he's kind of a facilitator, the quintessential politician, 
organizing the world, you know, sharing power with 10 regional kings or leaders, you know, one world government. But at the midpoint, when, when somebody assassinates him, or it looks like he's been assassinated, and then he comes back to life, at that point, the devil enters into him. And he's no longer Mr. Nice Guy, quintessential uh, facilitator politically. Now he becomes a bloodthirsty dictator, a bloodthirsty. And at that point, he now has dominion over all the earth, over all the earth, right? And um, after his pseudo-resurrection. And the apostate church, and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail in chapter 17, of course, but the apostate church will then be destroyed according to chapter 17, verse 16, once the Antichrist solidifies his power, he no longer needs the apostate church. He no longer needs her. Um, and she's been writing him, chapter 17, which means she's controlling him. But at one point, he doesn't need her anymore. He turns on her and kills her. He kills her, right? And the second beast doesn't go away because he was leading that world church. Now he transitions into a new position, one which he has always been prepared for, waiting for. This is from the beginning. These two guys have been in cahoots from the very beginning, okay? And now that the world church has been destroyed, the apostate church, now the false prophet who led that, it transitions into a new role um, that he's been waiting to fulfill, uh, and now becomes the leader of a new religion where the Antichrist is now worship as God. I'll let you read 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4 on your own. We've looked at that section numerous times, okay? But it's talking about uh, the Antichrist, new religion now, where he's God, all right? Uh, verse 11. John said, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The false prophet's new mission will be to use all the power and the means available to him, given to him by the dragon, the devil, to cause the earth and those who dwell in it, the earth dwellers, right, to worship the first beast, the Antichrist. This is the new religion. At this point, all of the religions and religious systems will be outlawed. And only the religion of the Antichrist will be permitted. And now the false prophet will lead the worldwide cult of Antichrist worship, whose deadly wound, verse 12, was healed. As we have already pointed out numerous times, many commentators believe that someone... See, not all commentators believe that the Antichrist is a real person. They think it's an institution or a government or something like that. So they don't interpret this to mean that a person dies and comes back to life. No, it's the Roman Empire that died years and years ago. And now it's going to be revived, re resurrected. That's what they believe, many commentators, good commentators. All right, I don't see it that way. I believe, like a lot of other commentators, that... Um, this guy is a real person, and at one point somebody tries to assassinate him. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 3, again, And I saw one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded. This head, of course, belongs to Antichrist. Uh, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. 
Now, you don't have to turn to it. You can write it down if you want. But Zechariah 11, verse 17 says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So somebody's going to try to kill him and he's going to have um, a blindness in one eye, paralysis in his uh, right arm, uh, blindness in his right eye. Um, I personally believe, as I've said before, that I don't believe the devil has the power of life and death. So I don't believe this Antichrist is going to really die. He's going to look like he's dead. And, and that's all that matters. I mean, Satan is a good counterfeiter. And uh, he's going to really counterfeit this um, uh, death of the Antichrist, making it look real. And of course, then um, when the Antichrist resurrects, it won't be a true resurrection, I don't believe. But it will look like it's genuine. And it's going to be such a powerful testimony uh, to the world of this man's, you know, godlike attributes and power. The fact that his deadly wound was healed, or in other words, he has the power to regenerate himself, to rise from the dead, even after he's been killed, he must be God. He must be God, and we really need now to follow him, uh, no matter where he leads. And of course, where he's going to lead them is the fight against the true and living God, Jesus Christ, when he comes back. We've talked about that. We'll see it again in chapter 19. But this is such a powerful moment in this man's life ministry and his, uh, his impact uh, on all of his followers around the world that it's mentioned three times in chapter 13, his deadly wound was healed. His deadly wound was healed, right? Three times he, he died and came back to life. And uh, it's going to be such a powerful thing that from this moment on, from that, that time on, um, the world is going to identify this one event with this man. This is how they identify him. He was dead. He came back to life. His deadly wound was healed. This is it. This is how they're going to just uh, be totally be sold out to this guy. Verse 13, he, perfor he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, he's talking here about the, the false prophet again. Okay, they both have supernatural power, the Antichrist and false prophet, but now we're talking about the false prophet. He performs great signs, miracles, so that it even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. During the first three and a half years of the final seven, the two witnesses will have been ministering on the earth, preaching a message of repentance. We've talked about this, right? So the first three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, uh, Antichrist is preaching his glorious message of how uh, people are gods, just follow me, I've ascended to godhood, I'll teach you how to do it, and so on and so forth. And the two witnesses have been preaching for this time a message of repentance, uh, or otherwise you're going to be judged and sent to hell. Now the earth dwellers will hate them, hate the two witnesses, and uh, will want to kill them. But God won't let them kill these two guys. Uh, Revelation 11, verses 5 and 7, If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. You can't mess with these two witnesses. Uh, you're going to die. Verse 7, when, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And this is, we've, reviewed, we've talked about this before, but I'm going somewhere with this. Just bear with me for a second. All right, I believe that the Antichrist, after his quote-unquote resurrection, 
will then be able to kill the two witnesses. God will allow it. God will allow it. So he'll be able to kill the two witnesses, which causes the world to say, Revelation 13, verse 4, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Setting the stage for the battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. But after the Antichrist kills the two witnesses, I believe he will then go directly into the temple and set up his image in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God. Look at verse, chapter 11, uh, verses 11 and 12. So now the Antichrist, he's killed the two witnesses. And by the way, the world is so happy they're dead, they don't even bury their bodies. They celebrate the only time in the whole period of the seven years where the Bible talks about any celebration taking place. They even give each other presents. A brand new holiday uh, will be enacted. Ted Prophet's Day, I guess. Uh, you know, it's kind of a satanic Christmas, I guess, or something. I don't know. But, um, but he, he, after he kills these two witnesses and their dead bodies are laying in the streets of Jerusalem, he goes into the Holy of Holies, sets up his image, uh, demands to be worshipped as God. Uh, Revelation 11, verse 11, now after the three and a half days, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, the two witnesses, all right? And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. And who's going to see them? The whole world. Because, of course, telecommunications, satellite communications. You know, can you imagine uh, Christians 100 years ago even? Reading this, how, how is everyone going to see something happening in one part of the world all at the same time? Well, we, we, we understand, okay? Tell me this book wasn't written for our, our day, okay? Um, but um, the breath of life from God entered them after three and a half days. They stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. The party is over, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. When God raises the two witnesses from the dead and takes them to heaven, the false prophet will answer that challenge, quote-unquote. Are you kidding me? You think God's offering you a challenge? You're going to what? Uh, prove how mighty you are some people are very deceived and so after god breathes life into these two dead witnesses and they resurrect and god takes them to heaven well at that time the false prophet will answer that challenge by giving life quote unquote to the image of the beast revelation 13 verse 15 the false prophet, guys, empowered by Satan, will then perform his lying wonders, his lying wonders, and even duplicate some of the miracles performed by the two witnesses. Remember, fire came out of their mouths, right? Um, the false prophet is going to have the uh, supernatural ability to call fire down from heaven, okay? Uh, I, I, I take that back. Uh, one of the things that one of the two witnesses does is call fire down from heaven like Elijah, okay? And here we see it, that miracle imitated, uh, replicated by the false prophet. Now, here's the thing, and we'll close. We're done. That Satan can fabricate supernatural signs is clear from Scripture. 
you remember the two um, magicians that withstood Moses, right? Uh, Exodus 7, verse 11 through 12, verse 22, remember? We don't know who they were until, uh, until uh, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9. He calls them by name, Janus and Jambres. These were two of Pharaoh's magicians, right? And um, as Moses is able to do certain miracles that God uh, worked through him, uh, these two guys were able to replicate some of these miracles. They say, well, that was just power tricks. That wasn't real, was it? Well, I believe Janice and Jambres had real supernatural powers. People in the occult, many of them do have supernatural powers. The Antichrist and false prophet are going to be given supernatural powers by the devil. Okay? And so God can breathe life into somebody into people that are dead. I can do that. And he gives life to the image. God had his guys call fire down from heaven. Well, here, I can do that. And see, it's the devil's way of trying to um, show that he's equal with our God, the God of the Bible, right? It's all deception. Um, these satanic, what the Bible calls lying wonders, are going to be very persuasive. But only persuasive on those who, have, who at that time will reject the love of the truth, that they might be saved, reject the gospel. And because they reject the truth, they open themselves up to demonic lies. And God will allow them to be deceived. Why? Because they rejected the truth. If you reject the truth, you open yourself up to demonic deception. And it can be pretty persuasive. Pretty, is, people are going to see in those days. Um, those who reject the saving gospel of Jesus Christ in those days will eagerly accept the damning false gospel preached by the false prophet, a gospel seemingly verified by spectacular supernatural signs remember what jesus said in matthew 24 verse 24 for false christ and false prophets will will arise during this time and show great signs and wonders to deceive these are real miracles if possible even the elect see i have warned you beforehand uh, you can turn to it um, sometime this week i would encourage you to um, also look at deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 to 5 where God said, look, if a prophet arises among you and claims to be speaking on behalf of me, um, and even if this person does miracles, but what comes out of his mouth is not consistent with my word, they're a false prophet, don't be deceived. I'm, I, am, I am testing you to see if you're going to obey me or you're going to be sucked into the science. People are sucked into supernatural. I mean, you know, I mean, most of the people in this world are ripe for deception because they don't know the Bible. And if somebody has supernatural powers, wow, that person is, well, they believe that he or she is either from the true God or is a God. Now, guys, next week we will finish chapter 13 and get into chapter 14, but not before we will spend a little time on what we all know as the mark of the beast. Mark of the beast, and many of you, you have been waiting for a long time for us to get to this passage. 
we'll get to it next time, God willing, and um, we'll study it a little bit, um, and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Father, we thank you for your word. <coughs> your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your truth, that we not be deceived. That Lord, no matter what miracles a person does, if they don't speak according to the words of to, to the words of this prophecy, it is because there is no light in them. So Lord, give us grace to, to be voracious um, studiers of your word, to feed on it daily to hide those truths in our hearts because it is the only way we can have protection against the lies of the devil. The truth of God is the only way. So we thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.